his own firm and he rented a beautiful office and he went out and bought expensive antique furniture and uh, he was sitting at his desk when what appeared to be his first customer came walking up to the door. So as this man was entering the, the room, he hurried up and grabbed his phone and he began to conduct business and he was talking outrageous numbers and demands and he was going on and on and on about this deal that was impending. And then he decided to hang up the phone and as the man cl- came closer to his desk, he said, uh, may I help you? And the man looked at him and thought for a second and said, uh, yeah, I'm uh, here to install your telephone system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it kind of makes you think a little bit there. I like the story that I heard, a true story of a, uh, it was an L.A. city in the uh, police lineup. And they had five men that were lined up and uh, one of them was a robbery suspect. And they told each one of them to say the same thing. They said, okay, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say, put the money in the bag or I'll shoot. And so the first one says, put the money in the bag or I'll shoot. Second one, put the money in the bag and I'll shoot. Third one, put the money in the bag and I'll shoot. And the fourth one got so frustrated, the whole process says, he said, I never even said it that way. (laughs) Anyway, what's the point? The moral of the story or stories is that pride often leads to personal embarrassment and to other foolish actions that harm ourselves as well as others. And a perfect example of that is found in our continuing study in the book of Daniel. In our last session, we began to dig into chapter 3, where we will discover King Nebuchadnezzar and his foolish pride will not only lead to his personal embarrassment, but will also lead to the detriment and physical harm of those who are close to him. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar's pride leads not only to the harm of those in his own administration, but also to the harm and detriment or the physical threat of Daniel's three friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were being put in what seems to be a hopeless position or hopeless situation. And it's during such times that we will discover as we go through this particular passage that uh, God is truly able to deliver us. That God is able to deliver us. And that's what we're going to find as we go through this. One of the most fascinating things is that is I'm sure that many of you have discovered the same thing in your own life. And that's during those impossible situations, I think God likes to put us in those positions. And I'll tell you, my my own feeling on it is this. It's during the impossible situation that when God, when he works, it's clearly seen that it's God who's doing the work and able to deliver us from the situation that we find ourselves in. And in Daniel chapter 3, that's certainly the case. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, where we're going to discover that that God is more than able to deliver us from some of the most embarrassing and some of the most difficult of all life circumstances. Daniel chapter 3, starting with the first verse, we read these words. It says, Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the perfects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had established. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples of nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
In this particular passage, we're going to take a look as we go through this chapter at five things. The first one we went into great detail the last time, and that was Nebuchadnezzar and his erecting of an image of gold. If you recall from chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision or a dream that was sent from the throne of God to, to uh, outline the history of the world as God had planned and as we see a panorama of the empires that were laid out. God had given him a vision of the world and what's, it, what's this world coming to and laid it out very clearly. And as if you recall, uh, Daniel was the only one who could not only interpret the dream but also the interpretation of the dream. And what's fascinating about it is God laid out everything as far as world history is concerned. And he, he laid out that Babylon was, was the, the first of the kingdoms as was established by God. That it would be followed by the Medo-Persian Empire and then followed by the Greeks. And after the Greeks, it would be followed by Rome. And after that, at some point in the future, all those things have happened in, in the past as far as we were concerned. At the time that it was given to Nebuchadnezzar, it was all future. And there's a resurrection or reviving of the Roman Empire. And we'll see that in, an, in a, some type of coalition of European nations, ten nations in confederacy that will be put together at some date in the future, each one headed by its own uh, leader, so to speak, or king, as it was outlined in the vision. And yet one day the kingdom of God would come. And, and it would be established upon the face of the earth, destroying any recollection of any one of those world kingdoms and the men who ran it. And that Jesus Christ himself will be the head of that kingdom, the kingdom of God, that will be established and his kingdom will have no end. And so the dream as it was laid out was, was uh, laid out before Nebuchadnezzar. And, as, and instead of being humbled by this dream, instead of being humbled to the point where he understood that God had given Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom that he was reigning over at that particular time, he got kind of inflated by all of it. He became very prideful and boastful. And because the dream said that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, and as Nebuchadnezzar camped on that one thought, he decided to dedicate an image. And the image was six feet, six cubits uh, by 60 cubits or nine feet by 90 feet. And it was fascinating. Now, here's, now here's something that, that we need to understand here. Last week, I butchered up the mathematics of, of the, how the gold was to be interpreted. And I appreciate all the help that I got subsequent to that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I learned that, you know, that, uh, that gold was weighed in troy ounces, and troy ounces are roughly 13 ounces to a troy ounce, and that the troy ounce was $390. And so I can do the mathematics based on that formula. But anyway, this image that he set up was, was approximately worth, in today's monetary system, about $22 billion. Now, please listen to me carefully here. The issue is not how much money was spent on, on building this particular image. The issue is the guy had a very, very high uh, uh, value of himself. He was very proud. He was a very proud man. He was prideful. And not only that, but the other, other issue was this. In an empire that had everything the world had to offer, the man had no peace of mind. And he was always searching for something else, something deeper, a deeper meaning to life. And so, therefore, he builds this image to himself. Now, what's fascinating was he dedicated the image. And as we're going through this, you notice how many times God pointed out that it was Nebuchadnezzar who sat up, set up the image. Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. The image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And over and over again, God makes his point very clear that Nebuchadnezzar had commanded that this image be dedicated. And basically what happened was at the dedication, he had called in all of his leaders from all the provinces around for the dedication of this ceremony. And what happened was when the herald sounded the trumpet, I, you know, I, I, I can almost hear it in the distance. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Man, I'm telling you, this stuff is real. Anyway, and uh, when the herald sounded the trumpet, um, 
they basically laid out the command of the king. And the king had said, hey, you know what? Here's the options that you have at your disposal. You will either worship the image or you will burn in the furnace. Worship the image, burn in the furnace. Worship the image, burn in the furnace. Now, as you can imagine, those aren't two great alternatives that anybody had given at that particular time. And the king was convinced that they would all choose to worship the image. Now, there were three men, Daniel's friends, who saw things differently. And they were about to reign on the biggest parade that Nebuchadnezzar had ever thrown for himself. And nobody likes their parade to be rained on, especially when you're a man who has a self-esteem or self-worth that's at least 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, worth about $22 billion. They just don't like to have their parade rained on. But see, these men, these three men, saw things differently. They weren't going to go with the flow. They weren't going to just kind of go with the system. They were going to do what was right before God because they had a godly or divine viewpoint on the situation. And so as we look at this, this is what was taking place. And now what happens is, in the next verses, 8 through 12, there's evidence that's brought against Daniel's friends. The evidence that are brought against Daniel's friends are found in verses 8 through 12, where we read these words. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the province or the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Notice that these certain Chaldeans in verse 8 came forward at this particular time and brought these charges against Daniel's friends. The word denounced or brought charges has a very strong meaning. In the English translation, translation, we lose a little bit of the depth of what they were doing. Basically, the strong meaning is this. They brought charges to tear them to pieces. They brought charges basically to destroy them. The accusations were so severe, they were intending to destroy the accused. And some basic uh, understanding is that uh, they were to eat the flesh. The charges were so severe, it was to eat the flesh. Or what we'd say today is this. Hey, they came forward to Nebuchadnezzar because they wanted Nebuchadnezzar to chew them up and to spit them out. That's what they were trying to accomplish by the accusations that they brought forward. And, you know, it's no surprise, really, when you think about it, that uh, there were those who were jealous of the fact that here were th these three Jewish men, including Daniel 4, who were brought into captivity when Babylon was besieged, and they were brought back to Babylon or, and uh, put into position of authority. There were many people that thought that those positions should have gone to their own people, so to speak. And so they were very upset about it. And uh, basically, they demonstrated their pettiness and their jealousy. And this particular time, they had already been there 20 years. And so for 20 years, there were those who hated them for everything they stood for and the fact that they felt they shouldn't have been in that position to begin with. And so they were looking for, on a continual basis, looking for something that they could use to accuse them before Nebuchadnezzar to finally rid the provinces of their influence, especially their influence when it came to the God of Israel. And so that's what they were trying to do. And there's a principle to all this that I don't want you to miss, and that's simply this. Jealousy is one of probably the most vicious facets of our old sin nature. Jealousy is one of the most vicious facets of our old sin nature. 
And what's fascinating about this whole idea of jealousy, I can assure you of this. If you are successful and God is blessing you in any area of life, whatever area that is, I will guarantee you there will be people around you who will hate you for the success that you are having in whatever area it is. And as a result, I need to share with you a principle that we need to employ in our own lives lives as God's people, and that's this. Never, ever try to retaliate against jealous people. The battle is the Lord's. Romans chapter 12 tells us this, that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. If you are the victim of those around you who are jealous because of the blessings that God is giving in your life, and the talents and the gifts and the abilities that he's given you, may I just encourage you, never try to retaliate against them. That, that vengeance is the Lord's, and he will repay. He will do what's right, and the battle is his. And that's the basic understanding of what's going on here. So when you look at this and what's taking place, notice, too, the demeaning or the actual anti-Semitism that comes out in their statement. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. That was kind of a, a derogatory statement. It was something that they were trying to set up. And what they were trying to set up was this. Hey, these, these people aren't even one of us. They're not our kind. And that's about as degrading as it can get. And that's one of Satan's tools and strategies also as far as anti-Semitism or racism of any sort. It's to try to break us into people groups that somehow we're better than others because of the color of our skin or because of our ethnic background of some sort. And that's nonsense according to the Word of God. And we need to recognize and understand that. And as he goes through this, they're trying to set him up. And they're saying, namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What, what they were trying to do was build a case against them without naming them first so that Nebuchadnezzar would be brought along into the direction that these guys wanted to go. And that was to literally destroy these men. And so they didn't want to tell him who it was right away for fear that he would try to defend them. So he said, hey, there are some Jews in the province who aren't even doing anything that you're being told. And here's what he said. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They don't serve your gods, and they don't worship the golden image, again, which emphasis, which you have set up. What they are doing, as we would say today, is they are dissing the king. I like that. Chuck Knox, when we were working with the Rams, I love Chuck Knox. He was a guy that was in his 60s, and he tried to stay young, tried to, try to stay current. When he'd give the guys, you know, his pregame pep talks and things like that, one particular day he was going off and giving the guys his pep talk about how, hey, don't let your opponent dish you today. He's going, you know, they're dishing you out there. They're dishing you. And he kept saying dishing and dishing and dishing. And all the guys, you know, after a while, they started laughing about it. You know, they were trying to smile. They are trying to hide it because, uh, you know, but one of the guys, he wasn't as bright. You know, he had gotten hit in the head several times. He's a linebacker, and those guys aren't too sharp. But uh, he goes up to the coach. He said, hey, coach, it's not dish. It's this. Now, what he just did was he just dissed the coach in front of everybody else. Now, that's not a real smart thing to do either. But the point that he was trying to make was, hey, you know what? Those guys are dissing you. Well, that's what this is. What he was trying to say was, hey, king, you know, these, these three guys are dissing you in front of everybody. Like, what are you going to do about it? You know, what are you going to do about it? And uh, what's fascinating as we look at this, there, there's an understanding here that's kind of interesting, and that's this. Um, what is he going to do? What's the king going to do when he's shown such disrespect on the greatest day of his life, at least in his own eyes and in his own mind? It's kind of fascinating. One thing that's fascinating as you look at this is, you know, here were men who refused to bow their knee to this golden image. They were men who had great confidence. And the reason they had great confidence is because they were filled with Bible knowledge. They were filled with doctrine. They understood the word of God. 
They understood that God, their God, was a jealous God and that we should have no other gods before Him. They're to make no molten image or image of any sort to kneel down before it or to worship it. That God is a jealous God. The greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so these men, when they were being challenged, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to love God and put Him first? Or are you going to worship the image that the king set up? If you don't do that, we're going to throw you into the furnace. Love God, worship the image, go to the furnace. Love God, worship the image, go to the furnace. And there was a struggle there. And it's an interesting struggle. And what they chose to do at this point was to disobey human authority. And it's interesting, and when you have some time, read Acts chapter 5 sometime, because the disciples were put in the same position as well. And they were told never to speak in the name of Jesus of Nazareth ever again. Through him, they had, they had, uh, they had healed those who were lame. And when they were called before the Sanhedrin and asked, you know, in, in whose name or by what authority did you do this thing? They said it was by the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you'd crucified. And they told him to go and never speak again of that name and never use his name of authority ever again. And so they said basically this, we must obey man, we must obey God and not man. And the point is very simple. The only time that we're ever asked to disobey human authority, because all authority is established by God, Romans 13, what we need to recognize and understand, the only time, the only time we are to disobey human authority is when that authority is in direct conflict with the authority of God himself. When that authority is asking us to do something that violates the word of God, we are to say, no, we must obey God rather than man. Now, what's fascinating about it is they hauled, hauled these guys away and they put them in a torture chamber. And the torture chamber was one that was kind of fascinating. It's this. They would, they would put them in, a, in a, they would dig out a pit and they'd drop these guys down into a pit. And in the pit were rocks. And where the rocks were, they would carve out pillars for each of the rocks. In those pillars, they would carve holes in the midst of the rock where they would put their hands and extend their hands. They would put their hands through and they would tie their hands on the other side of this pillar of rock. They would then put their feet through the bottom and they would pull their feet through and tie their feet together so that they were suspended up in the air. Now, the purpose of that was to make their back exposed so that when they would beat them with a rod, as they did in the case of the disciples, and they beat them with 39 uh, lashings, so to speak, but it wasn't even a lashing because they didn't use a cat of nine's tails like the Romans did, the, the Jews used used a solid steel rod or a rod of some type of metal and they used it and they beat the disciples across their back basically their choice was hey you either stop using the name of jesus and going and declaring his name or we will beat you with a rod in the torture chamber at the bottom of the torture chamber in this particular rock was cut a basin and through the basin is where all the blood would drain into the basin and then run out of the chamber And so now stop and think about this for a second. They were being offered this choice. You either stop proclaiming the name of Jesus or we will beat you in the torture chamber. You you will either worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up or we will throw you in a fiery furnace. Those were the options that they were given. And the disciples chose to continue to preach the name of Jesus Christ because they had to obey God rather than man. Could you imagine as they drug themselves, dragged themselves out of this hole that they were in and the disciples pulled one another out and their bodies were beaten and bruised and there was blood all over the place. They immediately, the Bible says, went back into the temple and preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wow. Now the question I have is this. How many of us still have that same type of boldness today? We're not even being offered those types of choices and many of us sell out and compromise. That's a pretty sad thought when you get down to it. And what's fascinating is, is that, I like I just read a, a book by Philip Yancey, it was titled, What's So Amazing About Grace? But he writes these words. It says, in, in 1983, a group of youth with a mission 
daredevils unfolded a banner on Easter Sunday morning in Red Square that proclaimed, Christ is risen. It read in Russian. Some older Russians fell to their knees and wept. Soldiers soon surrounded the hymn-singing troublemakers, tore up their banners, and hustled them off to jail. Less than a decade after that act of civil disobedience, all over Red Square on Easter Sunday, people were greeting each other in the traditional way, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Isn't that a wonderful story of civil disobedience? And what's interesting about it is this. You know, I realize not many of us in the United States, at least not yet, uh, will be beaten or imprisoned or threatened with death if we don't compromise our faith. But we will all come to various crossroads in our life as far as our Christian walk is concerned, where we've got to decide will we obey God or will we obey man. I was speaking at a breakfast not too long ago on integrity in business. And afterwards, this young woman came up to me and said, can I talk to you for a second? I said, sure. She said, I've got a letter I want you to read. And in the letter was basically a letter that was written to her boss. And what had been going on up to this point, and this was just affirmation in her mind of what she needed to do, but what had been going on up to this point was that she was being asked to lie to their customers by her boss. And she was responsible for this particular account, and she was being asked to lie about the results of what they were giving them as far as information because they had erroneously lost all the information and they didn't want to go ahead and reestablish it or own up to the customer that they had lost all their information. And it was going to cost probably thirty to $50,000 to retrieve it and put it all together and give them accurate, up-to-date information. So they were basically just making up stuff. Uh, week after week, month after month, year after year, and she was about the fourth person that was handle, handling this account, and she came aboard and learned what was going on, and she was struggling with the dilemma. What am I going to do? And so she abro- approached her boss and said, I can't do this. I can't lie. I can't, I can't be dishonest in my dealings. And so first of all, they, 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 uh, they had offered her a promotion. Hey, you know what? Just kind of go along with it, and it's going to all work out, and don't worry about it. And after all, you know, if you take care of this, there's big plans in our future for you here at our company. Blah, 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 blah. She struggled with that. She kept praying about it. She kept reading the word. And she was very much convinced what she needed to do. And she had written this letter at this particular morning for me to read over and go over it with her. And basically, she just wrote the letter to her boss and asked that she'd be removed from that particular account, that there was no way she could do that. It was wrong before God. And as uh, she gave him the letter, the guy blew up, started screaming and yelling at her, threatened to fire her, threatened that she'd lose her job, and all the things that go along with it. Now, what's fascinating about that is this. I don't know if you're in a position like that today, but the question I have for you is this. What would you do? What would you do? You're not even dealing with being beaten 39 times or being thrown into a fiery furnace. What, what would you do and how do you handle those times when your faith is put into conflict with the will of man? When the will of God is being put in conflict with the will of man? How do you handle it and what do you do? What's fascinating about it is this. She chose to do what was right. And what's interesting is everything that she had hoped would happen happened to some degree, and that was that they went to the customer and they were honest about the fact that, hey, you know what, we lost all your information six years ago and we've been kind of just, you know, duh, duh, duh. Now, she kept her job, but she's looking for a new one. And the reason's simple, because she doesn't want to work with people who don't have any moral code or ethics or values. And so that's, that's been exposed. But yet, in the same time, God has protected her through it as well. And what's interesting is this. And the point that I'm trying to make is, you know, what will these men do? Will they give in or will they do what's right before God? Will you give in or will you do what's right before God? Every one of us will be brought to that crossroads at one time or another. I'll guarantee it in our lifetime. 
The third thing that we see is this, the examination by Nebuchadnezzar in verses 13 through 18. It's fascinating what happens. We read, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to worship your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. How, how do you like that with a little office meeting? <laughs> Verse 13, he summoned them, gave orders in rage and in anger to bring them before him. You know, norm, normally Nebuchadnezzar was, you know, a very fair-minded man. But as we have seen, he could go off very easily when things aren't going his way. And what's interesting, in the slightest provocation, you can see this rage come forth, these emotions come forth. And especially when his pride was affronted, as in this particular case, not only was he angry, but he was burned up uh, to the point where he wanted to just grab these guys and destroy them. And one of the questions that's asked in verse 14, notice what he says. He says, is this true? Now, a better understanding of the question would be this. Is it on purpose? Because there was no doubt in his mind that they were guilty of the charges that were brought before him. But what he was trying to do was, he was trying to give them an out. He was saying, oh, obviously, you couldn't be doing this on purpose. So this must not be on purpose, is it? I mean, are you deliberately disobeying? Now, that can't be. I mean, you can't really understand. I mean, it couldn't be on purpose. See what he was trying to do? And this is a subtle tactic of the enemy when it comes to compromise, and that's this. To always try to give us an easy way out. To always try to give us an easy way out. To open the door so that we can compromise. Do you notice what he's saying? Surely this isn't on purpose, is it? And they would have read right away. Oh, no, this is on purpose. We misunderstood. What was the, what was the command again? Oh, you know what? They, no, you don't, you don't even understand. These guys are lying. We didn't do that. They could have said that. These guys are lying. And it could have put doubt in the king's mind about these men who came and told on them. But they didn't do that either. What's kind of interesting is the principle is this. The issue is always whether we as human beings will take the easy way out or to do what's right before God. I had a gentleman last week share an illustration with me that I really liked, and he said it was this. He said, if you're ever in an airplane and look down, you know, from 35,000 feet and you see rivers, you'll notice one thing that's fascinating about rivers, and that rivers are always windy. They're always going all over the place. And the reason a river does that is why? Because the water takes the path of least resistance. And so, you know, a river will kind of just go all over the place, just be like this. I thought, wow, you know what's interesting is all of us understand and realize that the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. And so as you think about the illustration that, that's laid out here, it's this. And let me ask you this about your walk with the Lord. Is your Christian walk like a river? Or is it like a straight line? Because I'm convinced of this. 
that there are a whole bunch of us meandering all around all these issues as they come up. But not Daniel's friends, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their relationship with God was a straight line. They walked the straight and narrow. There's a way that seems right to men, the Bible tells us, but the end is always destruction. The end is always as we're meandering around and beating around the bush and not dealing with the issues. The end always is destruction. But God's way is always, understand this clearly, that God's way is always the easy way. It really is. And while it seems to be an impossible choice that's laid out before us, God's way is always the easy way. Because what seems to be the easy way always opens the door and sends us down a road where we get so confused and so twisted and we wonder after we get down that road, how in the world did we get so far down that road, so far from God and so lost in our Christian walk? God's way is always the easy way, the straight and narrow path. In verse 15 is the heart of the matter. It says, now if you're ready, he gives them a choice. When you hear it, go ahead and bow down. But if you don't worship, you'll immediately be cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And his question that he asks is this, and what God is there that can deliver you from me? Wow. You ever a boss like that? I work for a guy just like that. Just like that. And in fact... One day, he went off on me about spending some time with a guy from AIA and we were doing something that had... It was lunchtime. It had nothing to do with business. But he found out I was meeting with a guy from Athletes in Action that we were planning some type of outreach uh, for, uh, for sports. And uh, when I came back in, he just went nuts. And he said this. He goes, you know what? Until you see God's name at the bottom of your paycheck, I don't want you spending time doing things like that during the work day. Like, whoa. That's... Man, that's one sick dude. You know what? But that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Hey, what God can you believe in deliver you from me? That's what he was saying. And he was challenging God. He was calling God out. Say, if your God is really who you say... And you know what? He probably didn't have a whole lot of respect for their God at this point either because what he didn't understand was this, that God gave him the kingdom and that God had turned the nation of Israel over to Babylon to discipline them for their disobedience to God. Now, don't misunderstand. Nebuchadnezzar is probably thinking, hey, you know what? I don't think much of your God anyway because if he was really as great as you think he is or say that he is, he would have never let me and my army beat you guys up. And what are you doing captive to me if your God's as awesome as you think he is? So he had some doubts, even though he was amazed by, you know, the dream and the interpretation of the dream and everything that's happened so far, he still had in the back of his mind is that their God wasn't much of a God. And so that was the challenge. And what's fascinating about it is this guy that I work for, the same guy that came in not too long after that and fired me, said this, when I fire you, everyone else that works here will be afraid. Is God able to deliver us from those types of situations? It's fascinating as this. After he fired me, within a year, he went bankrupt. Vengeance is, you know, vengeance is God's. If that was his choice, that was his choice. But what's fascinating about it is, is that God is more than able to deliver us. And as we went through this, notice what, oh, in fact, notice what he says. He says in, in, in verse 17, he says this, if it be so, I like this too. Notice what he says. Hey, you know what? There's a, there's no need for us even to answer you. You notice that? Oh, now you think that got a, a little excited? You know what? There, there's really no reason. And really what the translation is this. Uh, we're not afraid of you. 
We're not afraid of you, and there's no reason for us to answer you. I mean, what are you asking such a stupid question for, basically? Let's see, we're going to serve God or you. And we already told you, God gave you the kingdom. We already told you, your kingdom's not even going to last. So what's the big question, the dilemma here? And you know what? Let me just share something with you, and what's fascinating about it is this. Is that God can provide for us. Don't get so hung up on where you work and how much money you make and what you do for a living as if somehow or another you have to compromise to maintain that position as if God can't provide for you in another way. The best thing that ever happened to me was a guy fired me because I never would quit. I has got this athlete mentality. I'm in it for, you know, I'm good and bad. You know, I'm going to hang in there till the very end. And fortunately, when he fired me, I didn't have to deal with that dilemma. As he continued down the path of self-destruction, I didn't have to worry about it. And God opened the door for me to go somewhere else. And God's provided for our family. And, and that's just the way that it is. So let me just give you a little comforting thought. Just like uh, Daniel's friends, bottom line is this. Hey, we're not afraid of you. I'm more afraid of God than you. Fear of the Lord conquers all other fear. I've got to do what's right before God. What are you putting a... That's not even a tough question. But some of us make it a tough question. They said it's not even a tough question. But listen to their answer in verse 17. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able. And what he's saying is this. Our God is more than able. This isn't a big test to our God. He is not only able, but he's more than able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hands too, O king. But I like what he says. And this is important for us to understand. God's will and his sovereignty is perfect. Here's what they understood. If we're not to live another day longer on the face of the earth, then our time is up. Psalm 139 says, Before even one day existed, God knew every day would ever live. Before even lived one. In Hebrews, we're told that it's appointed for man to die once. Then comes judgment. Here's the position that they were in. The same position the Apostle Paul was in, and that was this. If today is the day that we're to die, it's appointed by man. There's nothing that we could do to, to delay that appointment if today's the day we're supposed to go. And if it's not the day we're supposed to go, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to make it the day if it's not the day. I feel pretty confident that we're in good hands here. And that's why I said, but even if God doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Therefore, case closed. That's what they were saying. If we're to go, we're going to go. If we're not going to go, nothing you can do is going to make us go. That's a pretty good position to be in. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. Hey, if it's my time, I'm going to go, and I'd rather be absent from the body, present with the Lord. If it's not my time, I'm not going to go, and I'd rather be here with you. So, I don't know. It looks like I'm a winner either way. What do you think? Amen? Now, can you believe that in your own life? That's the point. Number four, look at the experience of this fiery furnace. Then, Nebuchadnezzar, as you can imagine, just blew his top. He was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered. Can you imagine? Just seeing him? <laughs> the word rage in the Old Testament is an interesting word because the word is used of picturing a bull whose nostrils were flaring. Isn't that kind of fascinating word picture? And that says, if you ever saw a bull ready to charge and it was angry and its nostrils would flare and it started going... <laughs> That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he's doing. <laughs> in rage and anger... Gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before... The, oh, I'm sorry. He was filled with anger again in verse 19. He was filled with anger in verse 13. This guy was angry all the time. And that's another good principle. Never make decisions while you're angry. 
says, and, the, and he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, their clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood in haste, and he responded. And he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast into the fire? They answered, said, Oh, certainly, king. He answered and said, Then look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire, without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Whoa! Do you follow this? Here's an interesting... Look, look what it says. He was so angry, he commanded certain valiant warriors. Listen to this. He called the heroes of his army to come and to haul these three guys off. He made a big political statement here. He called the heroes of his army to come and haul these guys to the furnace. And remember what we said. The furnace was basically open at the bottom and there was a shelf on it so you could look inside it and yet everything was delivered through the top. So they had a ladder, so to speak, that was up the side. They climbed up the side and they would throw people into the midst of this furnace and they would fall down into the middle of it. Now he is like a raving lunatic at this point. He calls the heroes of his army, national heroes, to take these three men and to make a point before everybody in his extreme anger and like I was saying please don't misunderstand this there's a good principle here and the principle is never make decisions when you're angry never make any decisions when you're angry about anything whether it's to discipline your children or deal with one another as far as the spouse is concerned never make a decision when you're angry always allow time to cool off before you delve into things in the midst of his anger and rage, he took war heroes, had them drag these three guys up the ladder, had the furnace heated seven times hotter than it should have been before, and even before they got to the top to throw them in, when they threw them in, the heroes were burned up and destroyed on the ladder, their clothes caught fire, and they were, they were executed with the other three guys. Wow, how stupid can you get? And he throws them into the furnace... And what's fascinating is he heats the furnace seven times hotter than it's supposed to be heated. And think about this for a second. If they would have died, they wouldn't have felt it anyway. So instead of punishing them more, he actually was going to punish them less. So they drop them down into the furnace. And what's fascinating is they tie their wrists up. They drop them down. He looks inside through the opening and sees what? There's four of them. And he calls all these wise advisors who have absolutely nothing to offer him. They haven't yet and they still don't. And he called them and said, hey, what's up? Wasn't there three guys we threw in? And they said, well, sure, there was three guys. He says, then why is there four? Why is there four? And they're walking around. The other guys didn't make up the ladder. These guys are walking around. Can you imagine? And here's the description of the fourth. And the fourth. It's like the sons of gods. Now think about it from a non-Christian perspective. The only way he could describe what was seen inside was to take what he knew, and that was the pantheon of the Babylonian god system, the gods. And he said the fourth was like the son of the gods. Wow. Can you imagine what's going on here? This is fascinating. Fascinating. Now look what happens. He was astonished by all of it, and we'll close on this. And he says this. And the satraps, in verse 27, or 20, we'll start with 26, And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. 
you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Now, you need to understand something. For him to get close enough to the opening, hours had to pass. He was sitting there and standing there and looking inside for literally hours while this whole scene was being played out before him. What a wonderful thought in the midst of our suffering that God himself would be with us. In the midst of our suffering that Jesus Christ who says, cast all your burdens upon me and I'll care for you. In the midst of our suffering, what's fascinating is, is that the, the, the binds didn't even come off. They weren't even burned by the fire. But in the midst of their suffering, that Jesus came and untied their binds that bound their hands. And for hours, literally, they had an opportunity to have fellowship with one another. To be drawn so close to God because they didn't compromise their convictions. To be drawn so close and be in a whole new relationship with God because they didn't sell out when they were offered a chance to bow down to the golden image. Some of us miss that fellowship and that relationship with God because we've never not sold out. We keep selling out and we don't get drawn into that closer relationship with God that only we can experience when we're put through the flaming fire of the test of our faith that produces endurance. And endurance has its perfect results that we will be complete, mature men and women of God lacking in nothing. Some of us haven't had that intimate fellowship yet because we don't see that God's way is the easy way. Because we're living our Christian lives like a river meandering back and forth. It's about time that we experience the kind of relationship that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had with the God who created them. And were entered into fellowship because they didn't sell out. And they got to spend hours in intimate relationship and fellowship with God because they stood firm on their convictions. Man, can you imagine? I think they were bummed when Nebuchadnezzar said, come on out of there. I would have been. Hey, I don't want this to end. This is too good. And they were probably cutting up and laughing and having a good time. Can you imagine how stupid all those people look looking inside their furnace? You know, it's kind of like being at a zoo and looking inside the cage. If you can only think what the animals were thinking. If they could any think anything, I don't know. But the point is, is that they were having a great time looking out. And Nebuchadnezzar came up to the opening and said, Come out of there, you who serve the Most High God. And the satraps and the perfects and the governors and the kings and the high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men, check this out, that the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was their hair, the hair or their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Here's my point. When God delivers us, He delivers us 100%. Without even a remnant of singed hair or smoked clothes. Now, if you've ever been near a fire, you know exactly what kind of miracle this is. Because you don't have to be too close to a fire to smell like fire. You don't have to be too close to get your hair singed. I know that because I've barbecued enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, it just really does, does something to your appetite, though, doesn't it? Nothing like singeing your arm while you're flipping a burger. Nebuchadnezzar responded, and he said, and he blessed the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violated the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. 
Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver them or able to deliver in this way. Now, here's a fascinating thing. Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't learned anything. You notice what he's doing? He goes from one extreme to the other. And the point is this, that we cannot force people to worship our God. Understand this because it's very important. You and I cannot force people to worship the God that we love and the God that we serve. We can lead them to Him by living a life that is exemplary, by being salt and light in the world that we live in. But we must never understand, even as a nation of people, that we cannot legislate love for God. We cannot force people to serve our God. Nebuchadnezzar thought he could force people to serve his gods, and when that didn't work, he thought, well, now I'll force people to serve Daniel's gods, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. You know, we're just going to always force people to do what we want. And you know, God doesn't even do that, does he? He doesn't force anyone to worship him. Worship is a natural outcry of a life that has tasted the goodness and the kindness and the grace of God. We cannot help but worship and adore God once we've been forgiven through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. When you and I taste the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, we cannot help but worship God. And you can't legislate that and you can't force that upon anybody else. And we need to understand that we need to be people who lead people to Jesus Christ by loving them as God would have us love them. By demonstrating to them that we've got a good and gracious God who's in control of all things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego loved their God because he knew that he was creator and that he was in control of everything. And even if he was going to die, they still trusted him. Just like the patriarch Job said. And we'll close on this. He said this. Hey, you know what? Even though God may slay me, I will still trust in him. Is that the kind of relationship that you have with God? Even though God may cause me or allow me to lose my job, I will not compromise my faith. Even though I may lose this relationship that I'm in now, I will still not compromise my faith. Even though I may be beaten with a rod or thrown into a fiery furnace, I will not compromise my love for God. And even if He would choose this day to slay me, I will still trust Him. And we know this from their experience, that God is more than adequately able to deliver us from any of the harshest circumstances this world can place upon us. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you see how real this is? Our God is more than able to deliver us. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for your word. And I just pray that each of us could have a boldness that you would give us through your spirit to live a life that's pleasing to you, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and not to worry or consider the consequence or the cost of civil disobedience, but to do what's right before you. God, what a great lesson it is for us to see that you are more than able to deliver us from all of life's circumstances. And not only that, but as we trust in you and not compromise, we enter into a deeper relationship with you that we can experience only as we stand firm in our faith. We just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.